We're looking in Genesis. We're looking at chapter 15, um, just a, a hugely important chapter here in the history of the scriptures, history of redemption, if you will. Remember how the scriptures work. Uh, God is working out a plan throughout all of his word. This is one book with one main author, the Holy Spirit, although there are 40 human authors over 1,400 years, one main author and one main subject, how God is going to redeem his people through his son, Jesus Christ. And so if we go back in Genesis, we see and remember that Genesis 3.15, what I've called the thesis of scripture, that God is going to redeem through uh, the seed of the woman. He is going to crush the seed of the serpent. And so as we're walking through Genesis, we're seeing those lines, those, those ge that genealogy, if you will, carry out. And as we got through Genesis 11, we saw that the situation was seemingly hopeless. I mean, you had everybody spread out everywhere, speaking different languages, and no one was seeking after God. No one was looking for him. No one, uh, it seemed, was believing in the promise that God had made. Yet God calls this one man out of the Ur of the Chaldeans, if you will, Abram, and he makes a promise to him. This promise does not supersede the promise that came before. It does not replace the promise that came before. Because if we remember how the Old Testament works, God's promises build upon themselves. And what he's doing here is painting a picture, one brushstroke at a time. So the first promise was, I'm going to crush the head of the serpent. So we're looking for the serpent crusher. This next promise comes to, came in Noah chapter 6. I'm not going to flood it again. I'm going to bring the fire next time, which you will. But I'm not going to flood it in judgment again. I'm going to redeem it, remember. And now this promise in Genesis chapter 12 comes. And it's, it's this statement of how God is going to redeem it. He is going to use Abram. And those who come from Abram, the genealogy of Abram, are going to produce He's going to produce this serpent crusher. He's got a place for them. He's going to make them great. And the nations will be blessed through him. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Those three parts of the promise in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, that God's going to make them a great nation. He's going to give them a land. He's going to bless the nations through them. And so those three parts, he's going to bless them, give them land, and make them great. Those three parts set up the structure for the rest of the Old Testament, if you will. How God is going to do this, especially the history of it all. So we're going to see how he makes them a great nation. We'll see how he provides a land for them. And we're going to see how he blesses them. And he's going to particularly bless them through a king. And so here you see in Genesis 15, God has called Abram. He has shown him the land that will be his already. And in the midst of that, we had this little hiatus here, this little, this little second half of chapter 12, when a famine hit into the land and Abram had to leave and go to Egypt. And Abram messed up when he went to Egypt, having lied about his wife and put her in danger. And by putting her in danger, he put the whole promise of God in danger because the promise of God to Abram was, I'm going to make you a great nation. Well, Abram doesn't have any children, but he said, I'm going to make you a great nation, you and Sarah. And so Sarah at the time, he hadn't changed the name yet. We'll get that in a minute or a little bit later. But here he said, I'm going to make you a great nation, if you will. And so Abram, by sending his wife into Pharaoh's house and selling her off there in some ways, 
kind of put all of that in jeopardy, but God took care of it. And God takes even our own evil actions and makes good out of them. Aren't we thankful for that? Look to the cross, by the way. And so God takes care of this and he brings Sarah back and he gives Abram what he needs. And he goes back to, in chapter 14, he goes back to his land. His nephew Lot is there. They separate. Lot goes towards Sodom, which was a wicked city. Abram stays in the land God has promised. And then we see how Lot not only went and, and started dwelling close to Sodom at first, then we see that Lot's living in Sodom now. And because of the war that took place, Lot's life was in danger. Abram goes after him with just his few 300 men, and he conquers the armies and the kings, and he gets his nephew back. And after this, God blesses him. And so after that little, little spurt away in Egypt, he comes back, he goes to war, he wins the war, he gets his nephew back. And after that, you see two kings come to Abram, the king of Salem, Melchizedek, and the king of Sodom. And these two kings represent, really, the very nature of their kingdoms. Sodom was a wicked place and a wicked city. Salem was the place of peace. Melchizedek was a, the priest of the Most High God. He was the king priest. And there, in the end of chapter 14, you see Abram receives uh, the blessing from Melchizedek. He offers up an offering to God. He rejects Sodom. He rejects the wickedness of Sodom. He says, I don't, I don't even want to strap from the sandal of your feet to the king of Sodom. I'm done with you. I, and, he, and he blesses there. Melchizedek blesses him and he offers up an offering. And that question there is really a test for Abram. Because in this, will he choose Sodom or will he choose Salem, right? Will he choose peace or wickedness? And he chooses that peace. And so all of that is important because we get to chapter 15 and it says, after these things. That after these things takes into consideration everything that's come before us, right? From really from chapter 12. Abram was called out of the Ur of Chaldeans. He was given a promise. He made some mistakes when he went into Egypt, messed up. God punished him for that and blessed him in spite of that. And now Abram has demonstrated the power of God by going to war against major armies with just a few men and coming out victorious. And he has also demonstrated his loyalty and faithfulness to God by dwelling in the land and only receiving the blessing from Melchizedek, not from Sodom. And offering up worship there. And so Abram has demonstrated not just that, he, that, that, that God is the one he wants to follow. He's demonstrating that he believes what God has said to him. He believes in the promises of God. So his life has already, now he's demonstrated this. Now remember, we talked about this many times. To believe is to do, right? You, action goes with belief. You can't just simply give belief a lip service or some sort of uh, intellectual assent. If you believe something is true, then you act upon that belief. You have to act upon it. It's by nature of what belief means. You live your life according to the belief. If you believe God is real and you believe he's on the throne and you believe that one day you'll stand in judgment before him, that changes how you're going to act. That changes how you're going to live. 
If you believe that that judgment is not going to go well for you unless you repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ, that changes how you act and how you live. So belief can never operate over against doing or action. Your orthodoxy, which is right belief, has to match your orthopraxy, which is right action, right work. Everybody understand what I'm saying? In other words, your theology, what you believe about God, has to match your duology. Y'all get what I mean by that later. <laughs> what you believe and what you do have to match. And that's what we're seeing here at the end of chapter 14 with Abram. He is trusting in the promises of God. So he's dwelling in the land God has shown him. And he is not accepting the, the blessings from the other nations. He's not accepting them. He's not taking the wickedness of Sodom. He's trusting in God and his actions. So after these things, demonstrating that belief and trust, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Now, please, let's not forget that we don't need to just skip past that line, the word of the Lord came. All of our belief and knowledge of who God is and what he has done all of our belief and knowledge of his salvation and his promises. Does everybody understand what I'm saying? All of our knowledge of Jesus and what he accomplished for us on the cross is because God told us. We would have never conjured this up on our own. We would have never figured it out with our limited and finite minds. The reason why we know that God has made good and faithful promises to us and the reason why we know that he has sought after us to redeem us is because God spoke and he told us so. Just the mere fact that God speaks to us is a clear demonstration of the good grace and mercy of our God. He speaks. And when he speaks, things happen. I'm one that am terrible about making promises to my kids. Because usually I make a promise to my kid just to get through the moment. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Uh, Y'all maybe not. Y'all are all great parents. I'll do something like, if you'll just be quiet, give me five minutes, just be quiet for five minutes, I will buy you an unlimited supply of milkshakes this week. You see what I'm saying? Just do something like this. If, if you just be quiet, I promise you I will take you to Disney World next week. You see what I'm saying? Y'all think it's something, but sometimes you just need them to be quiet. And my wife says all the time, Allison's like, be careful what you promise. Y'all know what I'm saying? Because we we're bad at it. But what happens here in Genesis 15 is when God speaks, he's going to make a promise. And that means everything he is, everything he says he is, all of his righteousness, all of his goodness, all of his mercy, all of the fact that he is true depends upon whether or not he keeps his word, whether or not he keeps this promise. Everything depends on it. If he breaks one of those, he ceases to be the good and faithful God who always keeps his promises, right? And so think about how big this is, that Abram is here in the land and God speaks to him. And he's going to make a promise. In fact, not only is he going to make a promise, he's going to ratify the promise he's already made. He's going to double down on the promise he's already made. 
And so here's Abram, an old man at the time, his wife who was barren, old as well. And God has said, I'm going to make you a great nation. So listen to this conversation that takes place when God speaks. The first thing God says, like he always does and like he needs to do whenever he speaks to us is what? Don't be afraid. What happened? Uh, you know, people always talk about, I, I'm, I, uh, I was listening to TV, this guy preaching on TV one time, which, by the way, that's nine times out of ten, not a good thing to do. And so I was listening to him preach on TV, and he was talking about how he went to heaven. And he had a dream, he went to heaven, and he had a vision, he went into heaven. And he went into heaven, and he, it was like a comedy sketch. You know what I'm saying? This is a preacher. And a preacher should never be funny. And so we were in this, and he's like a comedy sketch here, and he's talking and describing God and, he's, and, and heaven, and he's walking around, and, and he said, I'm just walking. All of a sudden, I run into something. Boom. And I hit it, and I was like, what in the world? And I look up, and it's a big toe. This toe was bigger. I mean, he went on about a toe. And I looked, and it's connected to a big leg and a big old throne, and it was God on the throne. He was so big. And it was just this comedy sketch. When people are confronted with the holiness and power of God in the scriptures, do y'all know what happens? They fall to their face as dead men, the scripture says. It doesn't just say that once. It almost says that over and over again. Moses does it when the burning bush happens. He falls down, right? Isaiah says, woe is me. I don't need, I don't need part of this. He's out of it. John in Revelation and Jesus appears to him, he falls down as though he is dead. Because when we're confronted with the holiness and the power of God, when God speaks, we recognize that we are not appropriate to be in the room when this one is talking. Unless he says to us, it's okay. It's okay. Fear not. I've not come to hurt you or to judge you at this point. Fear not. Instead, God says, fear not, Abram, I am your shield. You want to know why you just went into a war with four kings that just dominated five kings? Do you want to know why you just went to war with them and all you have was your 300 men that their side job is like herding up some sheep and some goats? Do you want to know why you won that battle, Abram? I'm your shield. That's who I am. I'm the one who took care of you. I'm the one who has done this for you. I am your shield, and your reward will be very great. But Abram said, Oh, Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. I don't know how he said this, but y'all can think somehow in this way. I mean, who, for, for Abram, he's sitting there saying like, I don't even have a kid. My reward's going to be great. I, I'm childless. We can't have children. And Eliezer of Damascus, he probably said like, it's Eliezer. I mean, the guy's name's Eliezer, for goodness sakes. I hope there's nobody here named Eliezer. If you are... <laughs> If you are, you're the first. So uh, I've never met, so that's good. That'd be cool. A great name. <laughs> Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. 
This man shall not be your heir. Abram, not Eliezer. This man shall not be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look outward or look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Now, by the way, God can number them, right? Isaiah tells us that he sees the stars, put them in the sky, and he knows them by name. In fact, all of the stars of the heavens fit into the palm of his hand, the scripture says. And so ultimately, God knows how many he's talking about. This isn't God speaking hyperbolically in some way. This isn't God using prone to exaggeration. God is saying, you see the stars up here? I know exactly how many they are. And your, your ancestors will outnumber them. Be as many as them. Just to be clear about that, right? So whenever uh, John in Revelation 7 looks at the number of the redeemed before the throne, what does he say? That's a number no one can count. And so it is with the stars. That's Abraham's people, right? And so he says, your, your offspring will be like the stars of the heavens. You don't have one yet, Abram. You don't even have a kid yet, but your offspring will be like the stars of the heavens. And he said to him, he believed, uh, so, he, so your offspring shall be, and this is verse 6, and he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. In other words, Abram's belief, just like before. Remember, Abram believed, and that belief led to action, right? And his belief was testified by what he did. He was dwelling in the land because he believed the Lord. He trusted the Lord. He sees the stars. God said it's going to be that big. He trusted the Lord. He believed him, and God counted that to him as righteousness because his belief had actions that demonstrated it was true and real. Remember, we're not saved by our works. We're saved by faith. But as James says, our faith will never be apart or separated from our works. So James even puts it in the New Testament. You're saved by your works. What does that mean? It means that you're saved because your works are going to testify to what you believe, whether you know it or not. What you do is going to testify to what you believe. And so he puts this together and he says to Abram, he says, Abram, your righteousness has been attested to you because you believe and your belief has been led to action. So it's righteousness for you. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from the Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Now, the Lord addresses here Abram. If you remember a long time ago, we did a series on the Ten Commandments. And I wanted to make the point every week how the Ten Commandments begin. He's got the people of God out of Egypt, brought to Sinai, and the Ten Commandments begin with the Lord saying what? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the bondage of slavery. In other words, I've already redeemed you. Now here's how you're supposed to live. Keeping the Ten Commandments was not contingent upon their redemption. He's already saved them. Now because he's already saved them, now you live how I've called you to live. And so here God establishes this again with Abram. I am the one who called you out. In other words, I'm the one who 
gave you this land. I'm the one who called you. I'm the one who gave it to you. I'm the reason why you are here right now. And I'm the one who, have been, who has been making these promises to you in every way. That's me. I am the one who is doing it. Don't get it twisted. Now, why does he do that here? He's already started talking to him. He's doing it here because he's about to set something up for Abram. He's going to set up a covenant ritual, if you will. The word covenant means promise, right? And so this action is going to take place. How are we going to do this? The covenant began, it was initiated in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, when God made the promise. Now God is not just initiating a new covenant. He's going to ratify the one he made in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. And so he begins again by stating this statement of who he is and what he has done. But notice what it says in verse 8 there. But he said, this is Abram, Oh, Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? I'm the Lord your God, brought you out of the early Chaldeans. I'm going to give you this land to possess. Lord, how do I know that? Now, Abram questions God in some way. How do I know that? Now, there's people throughout the scriptures that that didn't go too well for. Y'all remember Zechariah, Luke chapter 1? Y'all remember that story? Told he was, his wife's barren, you know, and he's told, you're going to have a child, Zechariah. And Zechariah said, yeah, that's not going to happen, basically, right? Remember who came to him. Gabriel, the angel, appeared to him, said, you're going to have a child. He's going to be John the Baptist, basically, going this way. And, and, and Zechariah doubted him, and what happened? You are going to have the child, and you're not going to talk. Now, Elizabeth may ask for that. I don't know, but... But you are going to have the child, and you're not going to talk until that child comes. And why did the angel Gabriel say that? Because you did not believe. You did not believe. Now, he comes here, and something quite different comes. Something quite different happens here. Because Abram looks at him and says, he just saw the stars in the sky. He just saw all this stuff. He's already re-upped the promise, if you will, And he says, but God, how do I know? He's asking for a sign. He's asking for something. Show me something that I can know. And in some ways, there's differences about those questions of Zechariah and and Abram. But what I want to say to you is, God knows the heart, right? We don't know that. God is the one who sees where those questions are coming from. And God is not scared or ashamed or even worried about your questions. He can fully answer those. What God is concerned from is your heart. And with Zechariah, somehow, he's looking at going, that question you're bringing to me comes from unbelief. So I'm going to show you. But with Abram, he looks at him and goes, that question is coming from reassurance. So let me show you. What I love about God is just as Isaiah says, well, look at this, Isaiah 42, a bruised reed he does not break or a smoking flask he does not put out, right? In other words, God knows exactly what we need, exactly when we need it. And when we are at our weakest moment, he is not going to break us or destroy us. He is going to encourage us and strengthen us. And here, while he may have looked at Zechariah and said, you don't believe, I'm going to show you. He looks at Abram and said, I know this is hard, 
Because Abram's heart wasn't one where he was questioning God and his goodness and his faithfulness. Abram's heart was one where he was asking for strength to face what he has called him to face. God knows our heart. So God calls us, just as he has said, to call upon him, ask questions of him. But he's the one also who reads your heart. And if it's coming from a place of unbelief, then God may strike you quiet for a while and show you and demonstrate it. If it's coming from a place of reassurance. I love, I love that story of John the Baptist, too. Y'all know John the Baptist? I mean, y'all know him. That man was eating, eating like bugs and stuff out there. I thought about John the Baptist today. I was sitting in my window of my office, and all of a sudden I heard all this banging, and I looked up, and somehow a whole covey of ladybugs has hatched right outside my house, and it's like I couldn't even see out the window, right? Uh, and I was thinking, because I was reading about Zechariah, y'all, I, I can connect it in my brain. You don't have to. <laughs> like, man, you can, he was eating those kind of things. You know, eating the locust and the honey. And why was he doing that? Because he believed exactly what Isaiah 40 said. He was going to make straight the pass. He's doing something different, you know. His life was testimony to that, and he was saying it. Who told you to flee the wrath to come, Pharisees? The axe is already laid at the root of the tree. And the moment God wants to, he will strike you down. It's already there and ready. He's out there preaching, and he's preaching hard, angry. And he's going at it. And then Jesus walks up, and it's John the Baptist that said, there he is. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's John the Baptist who first for us in the text of God's word connects Jesus to the Passover lamb in Exodus 20. Exodus 10, excuse me. It's John the Baptist who's the first one that connects that, right? He's, that's the lamb that's going to be slain for you. That's the one who's going to take away your sins. Not only that, Jesus comes in and he's like, I'm ready to be baptized. John the Baptist, I won't do it. And he said, you're going to do it? Okay, I'll do it. You know? And, they, and, he, and he baptized him. The sky splits open. The dove comes down. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Y'all see, y'all, some of y'all wasn't even looking. Y'all looked up on that. <laughs> the sky splits open. The dove comes down and God speaks. And a little bit later, John the Baptist is thrown in jail for standing up for the truth. And y'all remember what John the Baptist said? He said, would y'all go to Jesus one more time and make sure he's the one. At that moment, John the Baptist's head was getting ready to be chopped off. And he said, would you go and ask him one more time, is he the one? And what did Jesus say when they went, got to him and asked him, do you tell John the blind are seeing, the deaf are hearing, and the lame are leaping? That comes straight out of Isaiah, right there where it's talking about the one who is going to do it. Here's coming one who will bring those things back. He says, you tell him it's happening. And John doesn't let us know this, but gladly, it says, goes to his death. God knows exactly what we need, even in our questioning of him. And he gives us exactly what we need to point us back to his promises and his truth. Zechariah needed to shut up for a little while and just trust him. Abram needed some strength and encouragement. So God is going to say to Abram, bring me a heifer. <laughs> Did y'all see how I set that up? Y'all didn't get it. It was too. 
Abram needs some strength and some encouragement, so God says, go get a heifer. <laughs> heifer is one of those English words that are just so much fun to say. <laughs> Bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, a young pigeon. And he brought him all of these, cut them in half and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down to the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Whenever Abram asked for a sign, asked for some strength, how do I know? God says, let me show you. Go get the animals, the, the heifer, the goats, the ram, the birds, and cut them in half. And then set them over against each other. In other words, cut them in half and make a walkway, if you will, between them. And you can imagine when Abram does this, he cuts them in half. The walkway is created. What's in the middle then? There's a lot of blood, right? He says, you go do that. What he's doing here is setting up a covenant a covenant ritual that's going to ratify the covenant to show and demonstrate its veracity, its truth. And so he's setting this up. Now this is explained to us over in Jeremiah. Now, we don't have time to look at it. I, I, I can tell you it's in Jeremiah chapter 34, 18 through 20. It's explained exactly what happens. You cut the animals, you set them apart. Then the parties who are entering in on this covenant together would together walk through the blood in between the animals. So as to say, I am going to do my part to keep the promise that we made, whether it's a land trade, whether it's a, a marriage, whatever it may be. I'm going to do my part to keep the promises that we made. And it was so solemn in this sense. Why? Because the statement really, the picture is, I'm going to do my part, and if I don't, let what happened to these animals happen to me. I'm putting myself in this, walking through this, sealing this covenant with blood, and saying, if I don't keep my part, if I don't do what I'm doing, or I'm supposed to do, then let whatever happened to these animals happen to me. And so God says, set it up. I'm going to prove it to you. I made a promise. God's word is yes and amen. He doesn't have to swear by anything because there's nothing greater than himself, right? The scripture says. So he says, I made a promise, but instead, because you need some encouragement in this and some reassurance, Abram, I'm going to do this for you. Go ahead and set up the ritual. So he sets up the ritual of the covenant ratification. And as the sun was going down, a deep sleep, a deep sleep, fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Y'all know what he's talking about, right? In Egypt. He's telling the future. Know this, Abram. They'll be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterwards, they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace and you shall be buried in a good old age and they shall come back 
here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now, two things are happening here. Moses is writing Genesis. How do I know that? Jesus said it, right? Okay, everybody good? You're good with that. Moses is writing Genesis, and he's writing it as they're going toward the promised land, having come out of Egypt, right? So under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Moses is writing what happened here with Abram. Now, not only that, I truly believe that these stories of Abram were passed down from generation to generation as well. In fact, many of these Israelites may have heard these stories, may have heard these stories at some time because that's how information was passed orally from generation. They didn't sit around and stream the latest show on Netflix at night. You know what I'm saying? They talked about stories from their ancestors. And they pass them on about who they are as a people and what their culture is and what they believe and why they do the things they do. And so here they come and this is their identity. And so they're doing this. And so they, Moses brings this back to them and he says that as this covenant is being ratified here in this ritual, God is going to restate the promise. I'm giving you a land that is yours. It will be yours and you will live there. You will sojourn for some time in a land that's not yours. And then you will come back. Your people will come back to it. You'll live here, Abram, and you'll be buried here. But your people will come back here in 400 years. Why is that? For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Remember, as they're going into the promised land, they're getting ready to go to battle with the Canaanites. Amorites. They're getting ready to go to battle with them and God is going to use his people to defeat them and he's demonstrating that that defeat is coming because of judgment for their sins. We saw this. We talked about this back with Noah. We saw it earlier. And so we see here in this that God is still a good and gracious God. He's forbearing their sins and the sins of the nations for some time. But judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. And judgment is not unwarranted. For while here at this point their sins were not yet complete, by the time that his people get there in the book of Joshua, their sins are complete and judgment is warranted. These are not innocent people you're going to take the land from. These are people who are under the judgment of God. And so here... He tells him and he reiterates his promise that God, there's, while he is forbearing with them now, there's coming a day where their sin will not be tolerated any longer. Verse 17 then, we've got to get to a close. He sets up the covenant. He restates the promise for Abram. In 17, we find the action. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Raphaim, and the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Here, something very interesting happens that we cannot miss. 
whenever a covenant is made between two parties, a bilateral covenant, right? The two parties and their representatives come together and march through these carcasses, these animals that have been cut. They march through there together, like I mentioned. Saying, if I don't keep my side, may what happens to me, or happen to these animals, happen to me. And now Abram's asleep, and it's time to walk through, but who doesn't walk through? Abram doesn't. He looks in the midst of the darkness, and he sees this two things, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. I believe these two things that he sees through are representative of God himself. In other words, we see this smoking fire pot is like a furnace. It will be a way that they would purify metals or other things and they would bring purity to it. And we know God is one who purifies and brings purity. He sees this flaming torch who comes through. And what happens every time we see God, we see fire, don't we? We see God and we see fire. We see fire in, in, in with, with Moses and the burning bush. We see fire in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit comes down, the, the tongues of fire, if you will, that rests on them. God is represented often by fire, the burning wheel that comes down for Ezekiel. You see God represented in fire in these ways, even the Mount Sinai. And if you remember Mount Sinai, when God comes down, what is it? It is smoke and it is fire. And so here you see in this picture Abram is told, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you a land, and I promise you. And at his weak moment, Abram's like, I need some assurance. And God says, I'll give you some assurance. Set up the covenant ritual. Cut the animals in half. Make the blood path for us to walk through to, to seal this thing. And then he does. And after he does, God restates the promise. And, Moses, and Abram looks up, and it's not him walking through it, but God walking through it. In other words, this is not a bilateral covenant. This is a unilateral covenant, if you will. God is walking through this. And what God is saying is, even if you don't keep your side of the promise, Abram, I will keep it. Right? And what will happen here, if this covenant is going to be ratified, it's going to be ratified by me. I'll do it. I'll do it. And so ultimately, God reassures Abram by saying, not only am I going to make you a promise, and my word is true, I'm going to make sure that promise is kept, even if you are unfaithful. Even if you are unfaithful. And guess what? When you read the Old Testament, what happens over and over again? God's people are unfaithful. They're unfaithful. It leads to exile to Babylon. It leads to lamentations itself as Jeremiah looks over Jerusalem burnt to the ground. It leads to them being pushed out. God's people are unfaithful to do what God called them to do. If you see it, it happens over and over again throughout the Old Testament. They're unfaithful to do it. But, there will come one of God's people, right, who will be faithful. And he'll enter into the dark night himself. He'll enter into the dark night in the middle of the day. And there, on the cross, he will be cut in half on behalf of his people. God says, I'm going to keep my promise even if it means I will be cut in two, and my own blood will be shed.
And he does. And it means that. At the darkest time here, the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. It was dark, and behold, God showed up. Of course, what I'm saying is in this, is God is demonstrating to Abram, I'm going to keep my promises even if it costs me, even if it costs me my life. And it will, because he sends his son. And Jesus was cut in half. His blood was shed to keep the promises of God. Even when the people were unfaithful, God was faithful. That's exactly what I think Hebrews is getting at in Hebrews chapter 9. In Hebrews chapter 9, he says, Therefore he, speaking of Jesus, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. We see this back in, in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps his covenant and his steadfast love with those who love him and keeps his, com uh, his commandments to thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him. See, God is gracious and he keeps his commandments to those who love him and he will repay those who hate them. And how does he do this? Because he keeps his covenant. He keeps his promises. And there on the cross, we see that directly. God, through his son Jesus Christ on the cross, fulfills the covenant relationship that he had made and promised. And there, there he gives love and grace and mercy to those who love him and he brings punishment to those who do not. To those who do not. Ultimately, this is what Christ has done for us. Remember, on the night that he was betrayed, he said, Take this bread and eat it, for this is my body that is broken for you. Take this wine and drink it, for this is the blood of the covenant that is shed for you. And then he willingly goes and gives up his life to fulfill the demands that God made in Abra with Abraham to keep his promises. I hope Tonight, as we look to this, we can remember a couple things. God always knows what we need, even in our questioning and our weakest, and he gives us exactly. And sometimes it means we may need to shut up. Sometimes it reassures us and shows us again his grace and mercy and goodness to us that he gave us through Jesus Christ's son. And God has saved us. This covenant is not only unilateral, it's gracious. It's not something we deserved or earned. It's not something that, that Abram had, had, had kind of qualified himself for. Something God did in spite of. In spite of. And what we'll see the next couple chapters is this covenant is eternal. That because God ratifies it, it will never be broken again. His people will be redeemed. His promises will be kept. And they will be kept forever.
Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness to us through your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, that you did not hold the requirements over us to keep these promises, God, but you have kept them yourself. And even in our sinfulness and in our shame, you have sent one who is a mediator, who stands both fully man, fully God, who would give himself and have his body torn on behalf of your people so that he can redeem them and fulfill all of your promises. And so we say tonight, by your goodness and your mercy, all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ our Lord. So God, let us be grateful. Let us be thankful. Let us live in light of the fact that Jesus has come, suffered, and died in our place that he has taken the punishment we deserve and he has risen again and now he is alive. And so, Father, we know that one day, just as Abram looked up at the sky and saw the stars, a number he could not count, and God says, that will be the inheritance of this promise, Abram. Know that one day, Father, we'll be gathered around the throne and we will see a number by which we cannot count and the inheritance of the promise of God will be realized in the face of Jesus Christ our Lord and we will sing salvation belongs to him who stands before us as a lamb who was slain. Father, we thank you. Help us live every moment in light of the fact that Jesus Christ died for us and is alive again. And you are faithful always faithful to keep your promises. God, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.